First Peter chapter two is where we'll be this morning. First Peter chapter two. And uh, God does have it under control, doesn't he? Amen. That's, a, that's a good message for us to remember. Um, we unfortunately uh, don't have it under control. Sometimes we wish we did, don't we? You, you ever been there? Like you wish you could do Unfortunately, we don't. And part of, uh, part of what Peter is going to speak to us in the passage this morning is that we don't have the authority, that we are people who are under authority. Stand with me as we read from 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, we'll read verses 11 through 17. This is God's word, and if you let it, it will change your life. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. Pray with me. Father, help us this morning to be under your authority. Put us under your word. Drive it deep into the core of who we are that we may be more like you. Use your word in this time. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We are folks who are under authority. Can't get around it. You can't sidestep it. We wish we weren't all the time. Sometimes we wish we were in charge. Uh, I know I know. you never did this as a kid, but I had those times when I was a kid when I said, man, if I was in charge, things would be a lot different. Have y'all ever done that? Have y'all ever done that as adults? Man, if I was in charge, things would be a lot different. You know, if it was really up to me, I'll tell you how I would fix this place how I would fix this job I work at, how I would fix this company, how I would fix this family, how I would fix this country. If I was in charge, the fact of the matter is I'm not in charge. All of us, every single one of us are under authority. Now sometimes we have a, a position where we kind of are the one that is that top level in that realm. Some, some of us are, are, are the employer. And so we have employees working for us. I've been in that boat. I've been the manager of the store when the store manager wasn't there. I was the assistant manager. The store manager had to take care of family stuff and so went on family leave. And so it was basically up to me to run the store. I know what it's like to kind of be on top, so to speak. I also know what it's like to be on bottom, even when your title says you're on top. <laughs> Those times were difficult times. I remember feeling so much pressure, feeling pressure from corporate to get things done and to make profits, 
feeling pressure from my employees to give them better hours or to fix different things. I remember that pressure. And it's, it's funny, even when we're on top, we're not on top, are we? In fact, oftentimes I think um, leaders tend to be, they have the, the high man on the totem pole title, but they end up with the low man on the totem pole uh, kind of position because it's all on them. They bear the weight. They bear the burden of everything. But we're all under authority. Even when you're the CEO, you have somebody to answer to. I was the assistant manager. That meant that there was a regional manager over several stores who was above me. You're always under somebody. Even if you're the president of a country, you still answer to somebody. Even if you're the dictator of a country, you still answer to somebody. We're all under authority. And the fact of the matter is, when you think about it, it's God who has all the authority. But he delegates it to specific people. Now, sometimes we might look and say, well, God, what were you thinking when you gave them authority? But he knows what he's doing. Sometimes we look at a person and we say, really, that's who you want in charge? Yeah, that's who he wants in charge. God has given authority to certain individuals in different realms, in different respects, even those who are on top still have their authority because God has given it to them. I mean, Jesus said it in the Great Commission. We often focus on what he said, commissioning us, but we often forget that one verse prior, he sets it all up by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, it's kind of funny because before that, before the resurrection, Jesus doesn't talk like that. He says that he does the will of the one who sent him. In other words, he is under authority. Even Jesus Christ lived under authority. So what do we do? What's our proper response to authority? Since all authority comes from God, believers in Christ should submit to divinely appointed authority. Now, understand, if a divinely appointed authority is acting beyond his divinely appointed limits of authority, that is no longer a case of submission. That submission takes a completely different route. It takes the route of, no, you're wrong. You need to get back in your place. Now, how you say that varies. You don't say that to certain people the same way you do to others. If I give my child a choice between a couple of things for dinner and they want something else, no, that's not the choice. I gave you the authority to make the decision, but here are the limits, right? Simple example, but it's true nonetheless. God not only gives us authority, he sets the, uh, the, the limits of where our authority resides. I don't have permission to spank somebody else's kids. That's a good thing. I don't, I, don't, I don't need that authority. God hasn't given me that authority. When it comes to my kids, I have authority to discipline them in ways that other people don't. There's a limit to authority. And we, as believers in Christ, should submit 
when an authority is divinely appointed, especially when it's acting within the limits that God has set for that authority. I read in chapter 2, verse 11 of 1 Peter, even the very first words show how under authority we are. It says, beloved, excuse me, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. This world is not our home. And because this world is not our home, we're not in charge. We are under authority. Now, for a time, we are under the authority of those who have been put in authority. We are under the authority of governors and of mayors and of councilmen and women. We're under the authority of a president and of a congress who exercise the authority that they have been given. Sometimes we look at them and we say, what do you do when you're screwing this all up? Sometimes we look at them and say, there you go, that's the way. But we're always under authority in some kind of means, right? And because we are sojourners, we are under the authority of those who are in charge here. But we're ultimately under a higher authority. If you read through Pilgrim's Progress, you'll see this. Christian, hopeful, faithful, his companions, they're, they're always referring to what the king wants. We don't do this because the king has told us not to. There's times when one of them gets in a, a certain type of mood of, of whether it's running away from God or whether it's despairing and, and being ready to die and, and thinking it's all hopeless or whatever it happens to be. And another one says, no, 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 the king does not want that. There's a recognition that we are under the authority of a greater authority than anybody else on this earth. The authority of God himself. We are sojourners and exiles because he is our king. And we are walking through a place that is not our eventual home. We are tabernacling. We have tents on this earth. Now your tent might be made of bricks, but it's still temporary. This world is not our home. We are sojourners and we are exiles, which means we're under the authority of the one who reigns where our true citizenship lies. So I urge you, in light of that fact, in light of the fact that you are not permanent residents of this mortal plane, I urge you, Peter says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why? Because they make war against you. You think, I want this, but that really is going to hurt you. I have issues with lactose. I really want ice cream. Ice cream does not like me as much as I like it. I don't eat a gallon of ice cream. I don't sit there and show, you know, no. I have to limit myself and trust me. That's torture, but it's not good for me. We all have those kinds of things. You know what they are. Those things that you like, that you hold on to, that you feel, like, I just got to have this, but yet it's hurting you. It's killing you. Sometimes relationships are that way. That person is just feeding off of you. They're like a parasite. And, and you just got to have them. I, I, I've known women who just got to have this man, who's just got to be with this guy, even though he's abusing her physically, 
and mentally and emotionally and spiritually. We've all seen those cases. You've got to stay away from the passions of the flesh because they are trying to kill you. You're a sojourner. You're an exile. You belong to a better country. So you cannot let those cravings that you have in this flesh, you cannot let them distract you because they're out to get you. They're going to destroy you. No, you're under higher authority. When you're in your own home, do what you want. But when you go to someone else's home, you treat their home with a different kind of... You have a little bit more respect for their home. If you walk into a home in Japan, you take off your shoes. I wish I could teach my kids that. They'll try dirt all over the place. But in a Japanese home, it is insulting. And so you conform to that part. You conform to their rule. It's their house. It's their rules. And in the same way, there are some rules that we have to conform to. We're under this dual sort of thing. We're citizens of heaven, and so we live by heaven's rules. But at the same time, we're also sojourners here on earth. And there's some rules that we have to live by here too. You can't go the speed limit in Tennessee if you're in Montana. You have to go by Montana speed limits. We're under authority and we should submit. We submit, by the way, by acting righteously. The way we submit is that we do what's right. Two times, two times in this passage, we're told to act in righteousness to do good works. Verse 12 is the first one. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see what? Your good deeds and do what? Glorify God. Our good works are a means by which we submit to the authority that we live under. Now, sometimes those good works may not seem to directly submit to that authority. But in reality, in reality, we're submitting to God's authority and their authority by doing what's right. Those good works are not only the means that we submit, they are the means by which we bring God glory. We bring God glory when we do the right thing. Now, sometimes there are situations where we do the right thing and it doesn't look very glorious. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we do the right thing and we look like we're being meanies. We look like we're being hard, harsh. Sometimes we do the right thing and we look confrontational. But doing the right thing is always the right thing. Always. Now it might take a little bit different here or there. There might be some cases we're doing the right thing is a lot softer and nicer. There are other cases where doing the right thing takes a hard stance. There are situations where you just have to fight and there's no way around it. There's other situations where you can be a diplomat and encourage someone in the right way, kind of help them along. But whatever the case may be, it's always the right thing to do the right thing. And when we do that, God gets glory. 
Now, you might not see that happen. You might not live to see that happen. I can think of people who died before the end result came to pass. People who were fighting for the right thing and who died before it was accomplished. It might not even happen until Christ returns. But notice, glorify God when? On the day of visitation. Whose visitation? His visitation. God will be glorified. And the primary means by which God will be glorified is through us doing right. There, uh, John 15. Jesus he never told us we'd be popular, by the way. He says, if the world hates you, John 15, 18, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Ah, you're in good company, right? If, if people don't like you because you're standing up and doing the right thing, don't worry about it. It didn't like Jesus either. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you keep my word, they will, if they keep my word, they will also keep yours. We're not going to be popular. We're not going to be well-liked. We're not going to have the benefit of a positive image all the time. And that's okay. Sometimes, sometimes it's because the works we do bring judgment on those who don't. Look, just a couple verses later in John 15. If I had not come and spoken to them, Jesus is still talking here, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. You see, when we do good works, it serves to convict those who are not doing good works. Now, I'm not telling you go out and do the right thing just so that other people will get mad at you. And just so they'll be convicted. It's a, it's a, that's, a, that's a trap that we fall into sometimes. Where we intentionally do something just to put it to the person who should have done it but didn't. Fine, I'll get up and turn the fan on since you're too lazy to get out of bed and do it yourself. That's not a very good recipe for marriage, by the way. Sometimes, though, when we do the right thing, it exposes the wrong thing. And the people who are doing those wrong things, they may not like us for it. But if they hate you, don't worry. They hated Jesus too. That's, by the way, why we're called to submit. We're called to submit because God wants people to repent. And it's through our submission. It's through us doing the right thing that God is able to convict of the wrong. Verse 16, he says, Live as people who are free. By the way, in verse 15, um, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. When you do right and other people accuse you of wrong, it becomes obvious. It becomes obvious. People generally are smart enough to know the truth. It's not a problem. The problem is to submit to it. Verse 16, he says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Another way we submit to authority is by serving freely. So we act righteously, we serve freely. 
Jesus tells us in John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. We have been set free from the bondage of sin by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Putting faith in Christ is what sets us free. But that freedom is not an excuse. Paul talks in Romans chapter 5. He, he tells us basically that, that, that Christ makes justification possible for us. Because the grace that he gives us overcomes our sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so in chapter 6 verse 1 he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we keep on sinning so we can get more grace? No! Do you keep, do you keep trying to get infections just so you can take antibiotics? Anybody do that? No. Why then would we keep sinning just to get more grace? Isn't that kind of like telling God, you didn't give me enough grace the first time? Your grace wasn't really good enough? No. My grace is sufficient for you. So we're called not to serve begrudgingly, not to serve under obligation, but to serve freely. He says two interesting things in verse 16. He says, live as people who are free. And then, he, and then a little bit later, he says, live as servants of God. I poured over this. Is that a different kind of live? No, the same word. Same, same thing. He's saying the same thing on both. The difference is because we're serving God, we are freed up to be able to do the righteous works that he's called us to do. And because we are freed from our bondage to sin, we can genuinely serve other people. That's part of this idea of submission. To submit comes from a word, upotasso is the Greek word, and it literally means to be subordinate or to make yourself subordinate. I think of the word subordinate. You know what? You, you know, the best way I can describe that word is with the phrase, undercount yourself. We think of people and we think of their needs and we think of their desires. And sometimes those come in conflict with what we want. I want to go home early, but somebody's called out and I know that they're short-staffed for this hour after I'm supposed to get off. And submission might look like me saying, you know what? I know y'all are short-staffed. Do you need me to stay an extra hour? I know you need extra bodies. Do you want me to stay? Now, I, I really like my recliner a lot better, but it's not about me, is it? Submission sometimes looks like that. Sometimes it looks like I am really tired, but this baby needs to eat. And so I get up at 1.32 in the morning and I feed this baby who's screaming his head off. Submission. Does it mean that the baby is in charge of you? Not really. But it means you put their needs first. Maybe, maybe submission looks a little different. Maybe it looks a little bit more like I've got a thousand things to do today. And someone calls and says, could I, could I get your help with something? Is there a way you could stop by for a few minutes? 
sometimes submission is, well, I've got a thousand things to do today. I guess I'll do some of them tomorrow. And it doesn't really matter if it's a real need or want. It doesn't really matter if it's such a crucial thing to do immediately. But to care for that other person so much that you're willing to go out of your way to serve them, to do for them. That's submission. It doesn't mean that they are more important than you. It just means that you are humble enough to realize, I need to take care of them. And what really drives that, by the way, is the third way we submit to authority. We find it in verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You say, well, that's a whole lot of commands. And they are, but they all revolve around one idea. We love unconditionally. We submit to authority by loving unconditionally. We don't put restrictions on it and say, well, you know, just because you're good to me, I'll be good to you. Everybody, it's easy to serve the customers who are nice. I'm talking about the ones that come in with an attitude that are always upset about something, that are always nitpicking particular details. I'm talking about the ones that you just, that people want to run away and go do something else so they don't have to wait on that person. And yes, I've watched it happen. I've watched people say, oh, it's that person and they run. I'll go do something else for a minute. No, we're called to submit. And submitting means we love unconditionally. There's several different relationships in this verse. Look at it. First, honor everyone. That word for honor, it has the idea of making something weighty. It's the same idea in the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. It doesn't mean that you necessarily obey everything they tell you to do just because they told you to do it. Though when you're two or three, that's obviously how you honor them. But when you're 23 or 32 or 53, oftentimes the way you honor your parents is by listening to their advice. It's by considering what they say. It's by by putting their needs above your own. And you honor them by loving them unconditionally. But it's not just that kind of relationship. It's everyone. This word is also in the past tense as though you've already decided and it doesn't matter what they do to you, you're still going to honor them anyway. You honor all, whether they deserve it or not, whether they earn it or not. We even talk about now about the idea of a heavy concept or a giving weight to an argument. It's that same idea. Their needs, their wants, we give weight to. Now, sometimes the way you honor them is you say, no, that's a stupid idea. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this instead. You think about about that kid who is addicted to drugs and they want you to give them money. No, no. I'm going to honor you by helping you. And I'm going to help you by not supporting a bad habit. It looks different in all kinds of different scenarios, but the same basic truth applies. We love them unconditionally. 
no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what the future might hold. Philippians 2.3, Paul puts it this way, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Just care for them more than you care for you. Second thing in this verse, love the brotherhood. That's, by the way, agapao. That's the verb form of agape. Love unconditionally. That's loving them the way God loves us, isn't it? Having purified your souls with an obedience to the truth, Peter said in chapter 1, verse 22. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We love them just the way God has loved us. It doesn't stop there. He says, fear God. That's how we show love to God. We fear him. Now, is that runaway, scared, hide because he's going to destroy you, fear? No, that's reverence. That's putting him in his right place. That's knowing that, that this God, I don't need to mess with him. I respect him. I revere him. I put him in his rightful place. And now Israel, Moses voicing God's words. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. You see how fearing God and loving God are connected there. And it works out in service. It works out in doing what he says, verse 13, and to keep the commandments of, and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. We put God in his rightful place. That's how we love him. And it says honor the emperor. It's the same word as earlier, honor everyone, but it's in a different tense. It's not a past tense, like it's already been decided. It's in a present tense as though we have to continually choose, continually reaffirm, continually act upon this honor. 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who will rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Those who do a good job, those who rule well, those who exercise authority well, honor them even more. Those who don't, we honor in a different way. We honor them by praying for them. Not just God smite them down, get rid of them. We honor them by sincerely begging God to bless them anyway and to turn their hearts toward his truth. We're all under authority. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes the authority that we have is wonderful. We recognize it and it's easy to submit. Oftentimes though, those jokers don't know what they're doing and it's a real struggle to submit. So do what's right, even if they're doing wrong. Serve freely, even though you've been set free. Love unconditionally, whether they deserve it or not. God might not change bad authority anytime soon, but if we respond right to it, he'll be, better, he'll be building a better people, even in the midst of bad authority.